than what we've seen in Romans so far. The copy is the power of God for salvation. In it, we can become right with God. We need that because the wrath of God has been revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, and that means you. Even if you're a good moral person, even if you're a Jew, all men understand there's no one that's good, not even one. But God has arranged this sacrifice of his son to atone for our sins, to take our place in punishment. And uh, so we, uh, so, so that he, he presented that, but it's on the face of our faith. And so if we trust and believe in Jesus, then we are saved by, by his faith. Now, we're talking about by his uh, sacrifice. We're talking about obedient faith, uh, a faith that commits itself to God. And we looked at that faith in chapter 4. Abraham is an example of that, David an example then we come to the wonderful blessings and results of justification. That we rejoice in the hope of, of, of the glory of God. We rejoice even in our tribulations. What God has already done for us in saving us from our sins is much greater than what he'll have to do to, to, to save us eternally. We can have great assurance, great confidence, great hope. Then we talked about the impact of, of uh, Adam and Jesus. That Jesus actually... <laughs> Probably shouldn't have been on that uh, You never know what's going to come up on my <laughs> So, uh, what we lost unconditionally in Adam, we regained unconditionally in Christ. In other words, we, we I, I don't think this is the main point of Romans 5, it's point of 1 Corinthians 15, but it's true that, that Jesus undid, undid everything Adam did and more. So, in Adam, all people lost access to the tree of life and all people will die physically. But in Jesus, all people will be brought back to the life physically. Um, but what we lost by sharing with that in sin, we regained by faith in Christ, which is our spiritual life. When we followed Adam and we sinned, we lost our relationship with God. But when we follow Christ and we turn to him, we regain our spiritual life. And so Jesus had a monumental impact, a universal impact. Jesus undid what Adam did and way more. You know, people talk about, you know, being tainted with the, with the sinful nature inherited from Adam. Well, Jesus undid anything Adam did. Plus. So if we, if we gain something from Adam, we have we, we that taken back away in Jesus. Uh, and, and, and more, Jesus overcomes our sins as well. Go ahead and go to the next uh, one. Um, okay, I don't need that. I forget what slides I've got. So, right. so chapter 6, here's the, here's the question. He, he ended it by saying that as sin increased, grace abounded, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign in righteousness. It's almost the idea that, that we have superabounding grace that, that goes past and overcomes all of our sins. Well, doesn't that sound like it would just encourage us to keep the sinning? You know, if, if grace just grows to meet however much sin there is, then it's like, well, you might as well just sin more so you can have more grace. Doesn't that kind of undermine the whole idea of being responsible for your sins? Doesn't it almost promote the idea of just let's go ahead and sin all we want, sin recklessly? Uh, well, people just say, well, I'll sin and then God's grace will forgive me. Uh, now, I might suggest would anybody ever accuse us of that? You know, I mean, 
Obviously, what Paul taught led some people to think it could be abused in that way, or some people did abuse it in that way, because he was teaching that grace overcomes sin. But he wasn't teaching that grace is a license to sin. You can look at Jude 4 on that. Um, I think there. this is the objection Paul will deal with in 6, 7, and 8. And I suspect there are two different groups that would have had this objection. There probably were some people, as there are today, who use Paul's teaching to rationalize a sinful life, who, who actually would say, well, okay, you know, I don't have to worry about my sins because God's grace will abound even more. You know, are, are, have you ever done that? Well, you know, I'll, I'll do this wrong because I know God will forgive me. You know, that's something we struggle with sometimes. I, I, that's, I think all of us probably somewhere along the line have in the back of our mind thought, well, yeah, I know it's wrong, but I can be forgiven. <laughs> That's a total abuse of that, this. And, and Paul does not want what he's teaching to be used in that way. I suspect even more in Paul's context, there were those who objected, saying that this will encourage other people to abuse the teaching. This will, this will cause people to abuse grace and to feel like they've got a license to sin. So, Paul deals with this objection in chapters 6 through 8. We'll see as we go how Paul responds to this, but seeing the problem, we'll talk about this more after we read, will really help us get a handle on what he's saying in chapter 6 through 8. So, would somebody read chapter 6, verses 1 through 11? <coughs> what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who died is free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? You know, that might be somebody's uh, conclusion from this. Why don't we just keep sinning? That grace would increase. What does Paul say? May it never be. Paul is disgusted with the very idea, and he shows us how that's just not right. He says, how shall we who died to sin still live in in it? You can't die to something and keep living in it. That, that's, that's a logical impossibility. If they had understood the meaning of their conversion, that they died to sin, they would never think, well, we can continue to live in it. They, they wouldn't have asked that question. When you die to sin, it means you repent of your sins. It means you renounce your sin. It means you quit committing your sin. You don't keep going in sin. Paul is not teaching that it's impossible to commit sin, but it is logically contradictory of what you've done to get into Christ. you died to sin, you must not continue living in sin. 
Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? You didn't know you died? You know, first of all, you can't live in it because you died to it. Well, if you didn't realize you died, why were you married? You don't marry living people. You had to have died to sin to be buried. And so he says, you were baptized into his death, you were buried with him through baptism into death. Uh, you really did. This was a death of the old man, the old sinful life, and you can't keep living in sin. Um, there is a lot of emphasis in the Gospels on Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Why does he emphasize the burial so much? I mean, they all tell the account how the women went, and Joseph, Arimathea, and Nicodemus, you know, they got the tomb, and, and they prepared the body what they could, and they put it in the tomb, they rolled the stone, and, and I mean, there's a lot, and then they go to the tomb on the, on, early on Sunday morning, because the burial really kind of like finalizes the capstone on the death. You know, you die, you're buried. That's oh, it, it's over, his life's done. And then he raised, was raised again. So also, our burial really emphasizes the fact we've died. And we rise to walk a new life. When we're baptized, we've died. We died, we're buried, and we rise to walk a new life. That is the key element in the conversion process, is our death to sin. We don't keep living in sin. That contradicts everything about our conversion. Now there's a number of truths about baptism in this passage. It's interesting that in a book where he talks so much about being justified by faith, he introduces baptism without batting an eye. You know, if you understand the nature of faith and its commitment to follow what the Lord teaches, you'll be baptized. Baptism is a part of our faith commitment to the Lord. And, uh, you know, baptism is not a work, like we're not saved by works. Titus 3, 5 specifically says we're not saved by works, but by the washing of regeneration. Baptism is the only washing that regenerates in the Bible, and renewing by the Holy Spirit. This all passage also ought to settle all questions about what you do when you baptize somebody. You bury them. You know, you don't bury somebody by sprinkling some dirt on their head. You don't bury somebody in baptism by sprinkling some water on their head. You bury them. And uh, you rise to walk a new life. You see in the Bible, water as the dividing line so often. Think about it. In the days of Noah, water was the dividing line between the old world, sinful, corrupt, wicked, and the new world, cleansed, free from sin. In the days of Moses, water was the dividing line between slavery in Egypt and the new life of freedom in the wilderness. In the days of Elisha, water was the dividing line between Naaman's leprosy and his being cleansed. In the days of Jesus, water was the dividing line between the man being blind and his washing the tank of Siloam and seeing again. And water for us is the dividing line between the old life of sin and the new life free from sin in Christ, forgiven and saved. And you start asking the question, in the Bible, 
Does salvation come before and after baptism? I asked that question one time to a guy. This has been quite a few years ago. We were studying together. And we were talking about baptism. He believed you were saved at the point you accepted Jesus. And so I said, why don't you read Mark 16, 16? And he read it. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. I said, now in that verse, does baptism come before or after salvation? He says it comes after salvation. I said, would you read it again? He read it again. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. I said, in that passage, does baptism come before or after salvation? He said it comes after salvation. I said, would you read it again? We read it five times. On the fifth time, he said, oh, wait a minute. And he said, I was just reading he that believes. Well, I knew we were saved then. And is baptized. That comes after the salvation. He hadn't read what the passage says. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. You look, at, you look at every passage that deals with baptism and salvation, or baptism and forgiveness, or baptism and a new life. And you could ask the question that the opposite way. Does salvation come before or after baptism? Does forgiveness come before or after baptism? Does the new life come before or after baptism? In all the passages I know about, the blessing comes after baptism. Baptism is the dividing line. You're dead to sin, you're buried with Jesus in baptism, and you rise to walk a new life. If you had the new life before you were baptized, you'd be burying a live person. That wouldn't even fit the analogy. How do you bury somebody who's already alive? That's, you're burying a guy who's dead, and he rises to walk in newness of life. <coughs> so the new life is inconsistent with the sin to which we die. Is Paul saying, let's continue in sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. We died to sin, and if you don't realize that we were buried, what does that mean? And so he said, if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. We have to be buried with him into his death and raised with him in his new life. He says in verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we might no longer be slaves to sin. <coughs> so, our old life was crucified with him. And, and, and it's dead. It's gone. That's a rather painful process. Crucifixion is not fun. And being crucified with Christ is painful. It's that, that's part of it. It's not easy to renounce your sins. It's not easy to turn your back on your old sinful life. Uh, but, but that's the process. We're crucified with Christ. The body of sin is done away with. We've been freed from sin, verse 7. Death marks the end of sin's rule. When sin no longer dominates, we live for the Lord. So he said, if we die with Christ, we'll live with Christ. Christ was raised from the dead and never died again. You think about it with Jesus. How many deaths did he go through? One. When he was raised from the dead, he wasn't subject to death anymore. He was raised definitively. He won a total, decisive, and permanent victory over sin. He rose never to die again. That was the final thing. We must see ourselves that same way. We Die to sin and we live. We don't, we shouldn't have to keep going back and re-crucifying the old man. 
We die and we live to the Lord. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We must definitively renounce sin and live to Jesus. That's the whole point of our conversion process. And so Paul is showing that the idea that we can just abuse grace and think we can continue in sin is a total contradiction of everything we did to come into Christ. I think there's a fairly clear passage, powerful passage, ought to make us rethink our commitment. Are we really living to the Lord? And have we, uh, have we allowed the old man to somehow be resuscitated? Questions and comments? Steve? Would you relate the dying to sin to repentance? Yes, absolutely. I think that's what it is. Peterson. I don't really have this thought out yet, but um, what, is, what is the idea of being crucified with Christ? How would that be to think of all of you that go out of the water? Uh, the idea of like, renouncing our old life? Yes. Um, is, that, is that like a continual type of thing? Uh, where we just like to renounce ourselves and try to live in Christ? I think it's a decisive act that we must continue to live out. So we, we die to sin. Now we've got to continue to maintain our death to sin on our life in Christ. It's possible for, for that sin to resuscitate and for our old man to come back on us. But that shouldn't happen. That's not what God intends to happen. It's not what has to happen. You know, sometimes it's like we almost feel like we're just destined to, be, to, to continue to be slaves to sin. Why? Jesus freed us from our sin. Now, I don't mean to contradict First John 1a. You know, I know that we can't say that we absolutely are sinlessly perfect. But this idea that I just have to give in, I just can't resist. No, that's not true. We have died with Christ, and we can live for the Lord. And so I think we need to continue to maintain that crucifixion of the flesh intact. Yes? I think that that's why in Luke... Luke 9, verse 23, Jesus says, um, he, will, he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And that, that cross isn't a cross of like bearing some trouble in life. To, like it's for what we were talking about, it's crucifixion. Right, so exactly. every day we have to live out that denial process and that dying process. Good point. And I agree with you. I think the cross the is our crucifixion of ourselves. That's a good point. Other thoughts, questions? Yes. So you brought up first John, and that's what I was thinking about, but emphasizing more the living, because John draws the distinction between abiding in sin, living in sin, versus abiding with, with God, with Christ. So uh, we put aside, and we don't live there. That's not where our home is anymore. Our home is with God. Regrettably, we wander outside the camp, but that's where we should Yes, exactly. Yes, we are to be alive in the Lord, live to God, very good point. Other thoughts? 12 to 14. Let not sin therefore remain in the Lord of God to make you obey his passions. 
So he says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. You know, so the, the death to sin won't just happen automatically, and we won't have we won't be able just to go on automatic pilot. We can't let sin to continue to reign in our mortal bodies. We have been raised, but we await the ultimate resurrection. Uh, there are some things that continue to be finalized in this life. We're not living totally in heaven. We're living in the heavenly places, but we still have a battle with sin. And notice that the battleground with Satan is our mortal body. The beachhead that sin tries to establish is in our body. Now, our, our, our body of sin is dying. Our, our physical body is dying. Give in to that is pathetic. So we must not allow sin to reign in our mortal bodies to obey its lust, to obey its desires. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. We have a deliberate choice to make. The sins we commit involve our body parts. I believe this is where Paul gets down to the brassest tacks there are and just deals with what do you do? You guys that struggle with pornography, what do you do? You do not let your finger click the button that sends you to pornographic sites. You do not let your eyes continue on some image that's not appropriate. You do not let your mind continue to harbor those illicit thoughts. You use your body parts properly. Maybe you don't let your finger click on the computer screen. You know, maybe you don't let your uh, feet carry you to a place where you can buy a smartphone. You know, etc. You know, maybe it's what you say. You know, you don't let your tongue say something angry and impatient. You don't let your hand reach out in an angry, undisciplined way, etc. You think about our sins, whatever you battle with, is a matter of using the members of your body and making them instruments of righteousness, not instruments of sin. So there is a continuing need for us to discipline ourselves and to live out the life of God in our life. We have a deliberate choice to make. And we've got to withhold every member of our body from sin. I really like this passage because it does give us so much just um, motivation and, and, and incentive Stop letting your members of your body do wrong. Sometimes, there's a guy in Brazil right now I'm working with, that I think he just feels like he has no control. It's like, you don't have to do this. 
You don't have to use your eyes this way. He struggles a lot in school with looking at girls. But you can turn your head. Christian men get to know very well what the ground looks like. <laughs> and that's absolutely true. In a lot of cases, in a lot of situations. You don't work. I mean, you know, we do have head muscles. We have eye muscles. There is nothing that makes me look at something I'm not supposed to look at. I can turn my head. You know, it's a matter of choosing, deciding I'm going to make the right choice. And I, I think sometimes we just feel like, well, you know, I'm just kind of a victim. You know, uh, there, there, there's all these pretty girls around. What am I supposed to do? You're supposed to do what every man committed to the Lord does and turn your eyes, turn your head. And, 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 and that's true with every sin. We're not just fated to give in. We have the power given by God to overcome. Now look what he says in 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, that is a remarkable statement. That is a very important statement in the overall scheme of chapter 6 through 8. When we were under the law as a means of justification, you couldn't escape the service of sin. Because under the law, you're a sinner no matter what you do. Because you sin, you're a sinner. You know who they really have to watch in prison? Who, they, who are the most dangerous criminals in prison? The people on death row. Can you do worse than dying? If you're going to die anyway, you have no incentive not to kill the guard if you can figure out a way to do it. You can't be doubly dead. You know, they can only kill you once. So if you're going to die anyway, then do whatever. You know, it's kind of like that with sin. If you're under the law, you're a sinner no matter what you do. You can't avoid being a sinner. You're, you're lost and guilty before God, period. Then you might as well just sin it up. Because, because you're, you're still going to be stained and smudged and, and, and black no matter what. Even if you do what's right, you still got the guilt of all those sins that are not atoned for. So under the law, you become a slave to sin. Grace liberates you from sin. Being under grace is not an excuse for sin, but a call to arms. The real power for our struggle against sin is not the law, it's grace. Grace liberates us. Forgiveness gives us the power to overcome sin in our life because we can really be righteous before God. We're not fighting a losing battle. If you take a piece of paper and you live on a muddy road and people are coming into your house and they're stepping on the piece of paper as if it were a welcome mat. And they get it just tracked with all sorts of ugly, filthy mud. And then you take that muddy, yucky piece of paper and you say, you give it to somebody and say, be, be sure to keep that clean. <laughs> it's so defiled, it's so so dirty, you couldn't get it any dirtier. You have no incentive to keep it clean at all. You give somebody a pristine, white piece of paper and say, keep it clean. You have, you have incentive to keep it clean. It's clean. Our lives are clean by the forgiveness of Jesus, by the, by the sacrifice of Christ. He took the punishment of our sins, and we are free from sin. Grace liberates us. Grace enables us to be righteous because we have the moral power we've been forgiven. And so his point is, does grace 
it encouraged us to live in sin? No, not at all. It's just the opposite. Law encourages us to live in sin. Grace enables us to overcome sin. There's lots of implications to that. Legalistically minded people struggle more with sin than people who really understand grace and realize they've been forgiven completely by God. Thoughts and comments? Carl? I'm under John 8 when Jesus says, you know, the truth, the truth will make you free. There is freedom in knowing ahead of time what God expects of you and what he wants you to do. Not in a legalistic way, but in just knowing, I don't have to decide about this. God's already decided. I'm just going to do what he said. Amen. Amen. Good point. Yes. Um, when Cain killed his brother, God said, sin lies at the door. It's desirous for you, but you should rule over it. Way back then, God was saying the same thing. We have to do it. Yes, yes, amen. Yeah, yeah. And, and God gives us the power and strength to do that. We are not just destined to have to fall. Yes, please. The idea of like, we had a point about grace to raise us from sin. Yes. It's kind of that idea of like, um, what Paul talks about when you have like the war going in the heavens. He says, I bring down every lofty opinion against, against God to so obey, obey the Lord. How, how, how do you have grace liberating us from sin? Well, it's true that Jesus has defeated sin. That's a part of the whole picture, obviously. Jesus conquered sin. But grace has freed us from the guilt and stain of sin to where we have the courage and the strength to fight because we're not a sinner. Austin. Awesome. I think of it this way. I either yield to sin or I yield to God and his righteousness and what he wants for me. Right. Yes. Yes, Robert. A particular word that kind of stuck out for me in verse 12 was the word mortal, your mortal body. Yes. And because when, when, we, when we look at that life from that sense, things, things do make more sense. I mean, all things are temporary. Right, including the desires that the body may have, but the body's going to waste away someday anyway. And this is eternity on the line that you need, you need to keep in mind. Yeah, don't give in to your dying body. Yeah, I think that's the point. And, and our desires are from our body. Sin uses our body, but it's pathetic to give in to a body that's dying. Yes. So when I said that you have more power to fight sin when you have a grace-based idea than a legalistic idea, the idea that you can just make enough rules and follow the rules and you can make yourself good enough, as opposed to you turn to God's grace for forgiveness and for strength to overcome. You can't just overcome sin by adding some more rules to your life and somehow desperately trying to make yourself good enough. But when you have the grace of God to forgive your sins, it gives you strength and hope to overcome. Matt. I really appreciate chapter 6. It's a very convicting chapter, but Paul uses a lot of positive phrases. We have newness of life through Christ. Sin no longer has dominion over us. 
very positive. It's convicting, but very positive. Yes. And when you compare it to chapter 7, it's even more so. That's, chapter 7 is so depressing and hopeless. Yes. Chapter 7 is the life of the man under the law. Chapter 6 and 8 is the life of the man in Christ. And it's totally different. Amen. Yes. We'll cut we'll cover chapter 7. Some of you don't agree with me about chapter 7, but hopefully you will after a <laughs> Alright. How about 15 to 23? What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God, but God be there that though you were slaves of sin, Yet you obey from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanliness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your, your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you are slaves of sin, you are free in regard to righteousness. What fruit then did what fruit did you have then in the same things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have now you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Just the opposite. Grace is not a license to commit sin. It's a command to avoid sin, to overcome sin in our life. But even under grace, we can become slaves to the one we get into, the one we obey. Grace does not destroy human choices. So we still have to decide, are we going to live by grace, or are we going to live a submissive to sin? Christians are no longer slaves to sin, and they mustn't live that way. We've got two choices. We can either obey sin resulting in death, or obedience resulting in righteousness. We can either be a slave to sin, or a servant of God. That's only two choices we have. We do not have absolute freedom. We will end up being a servant, a slave to sin or to God. He says, thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, that's what they used to be, they became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which they were committed. So what did they do? They obeyed from the heart. What happened to them? They were freed from sin and they became slaves to righteousness. It's an amazing thing that God enables us to go from being slaves to sin by our obedience from the heart to be slaves to righteousness. It's so much better to serve righteousness than to serve sin. We are, it's just, it's just this has been a tremendous transformation for us. We are free. We can be servants of God and we don't have to be slaves to sin anymore. What a blessing. Amen. Now look at what he says in verse 17. We became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. That is a weird way to say that. If you're not careful, you read that the opposite. The form of teaching that was committed to us. 
as if the teaching was given to us. That's not what it says. It says the form of teaching to which you were committed. We were given to the teaching, not the teaching given to us, in the sense that the teaching, the gospel, shapes and molds and changes us. We were given over to the teaching for the teaching to operate in our life and transform us. That's what he's saying. But if you're not careful, you don't read it that way. So he says, I'm speaking in Newman terms. It's kind of bad to talk about being a slave to God. That's kind of a degrading term to talk about the privilege of serving the Lord. But at least it helps you understand this in a clear way. We are not to devote ourselves to sin, but we're to be a slave to God. We're to give ourselves to him. He owns us. We're at his disposal, and we need to serve him. And so he uses that term because of the weakness of the flesh, because we have a hard time getting across the idea that we just need to serve God. And so he's just going to call it slavery, pure and simple, because that's ultimately what we are. God bought us, we're his property, and we're to be his slaves. If you saw yourself that way, wouldn't it change things? If you really thought of yourself as being a slave to God, he's the master, I'm the servant, he calls the shots, period. No questions asked. Whatever he says in front of you. That's a slave. And that's what we need to be to the Lord. Now, you think about it. There are two opposite courses with two opposite results. He says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, 20. What benefit were you deriving from those things which you are now ashamed for the outcome of those things is death. If you serve sin, it's shame and death. But now you've been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. The result of service to God, sanctification and eternal life. It's one or the other. You want to have shame and death, or you want to have sanctification and eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You've got three contrasts. Sin versus God. Death versus eternal life. And wage earned versus a gift received. So much better to serve Christ and receive the free gift of God, eternal life, than serve Satan and receive the wages of sin, which is death. Grace frees us from sin and makes us a servant to God. That is the best thing that could ever happen to us. We need to live out being a servant to God by really giving the members of our body to God and using ourselves fully in God's service. Okay, thoughts and comments. Steve.
but God has offered this gift to everyone. Amen. Praise God. Reminds me of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. He says, The love of Christ controls me, or another translation says, compels me. It's not. It's the idea of, I can't do anything but this because of what's been done for me. Yes. Our love should motivate us to serve God, Matt. I really appreciate verse 21. When we're, and we should ask ourselves this question, but also when we're talking to others about the implication of this passage. When, when we want to defend living in sin like it's not something God expects, why would we want to even defend that? What are we getting from that? What is it really worth defending? Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's no good consequence from serving sin. All, you know, with sin, the best is at the beginning, and it's all downhill from there. With with the Lord, it all gets better and better and better. Think about that. Other thoughts? Right. This is just more impactful, at least to me, because of the first three chapters and the focus on you're all sinners, and you're all condemned. You are all slaves, but God came in and gave you the option to change. Read us. Yes, amen. Other thoughts? You can't serve two masters, it comes down to it. That's right. We have to make the choice. All right, so Noah's going to lead us in some songs on these uh, concepts, and then we'll take a break for a few minutes and come back. <laughs>